0: Uh, my name's Eric Jafrudi. For those of you that don't know me, I'm one of the elders here at Element. And uh, Aaron, who's normally teaching, he's on vacation—a well-deserved vacation, I might add. He's going to be gone for a little while up in the mountains. So um, I would ask that you pray for him, especially not to get hurt, because <laughs> uh, I know he—he he, he brought his Xbox, and so that could do a lot of damage to your, you know, like carpal tunnel and stuff. So <clears throat> snowboarding will probably be fine. Anyway, it's always my uh, pleasure and privilege to be able to speak to you. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 86, verse 11. It says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. Let's pray. Father, this morning, Lord, I pray that you would speak to every person in this room. Lord, that you would... Speak to our hearts in such a way that we might see what it means to really know you, that we might understand what it means to bring you glory, and that you would just help us, Father, to strive after all that you have for us and that which you've called us to. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So, you know, the older that I get, the more amazed I am at how fast time just seems to go by. You know, when I was young, time seemed to kind of stand still, but now it seems like I'm continually chasing after it. I'm always looking for more. Does anybody know what I mean? Anybody? I expected more of the older people to go like that. Yeah. You know, to be honest, um, I'm a little afraid, actually. I'm afraid of getting to the end of my life and looking back, regretting how I spent much of my time, regretting how I spent my life. And the scriptures are clear, you know, we only get one chance and one opportunity to live this life on earth before we die. And I don't want to waste it. I don't know about you, but I don't want to waste it. And so New Year's is a holiday that celebrates the passage of time. And maybe that's why it's often a time of personal reflection and resulting uh, resolutions to make changes in our lives for the better. You know, we, we get to the end of the year and we review what we have done, what we haven't done, what we've become or not become, what we've acquired or not acquired, and we compare it to what we had thought would be the case. And how we deal with this kind of self-examination depends on our worldview because Christian believers and non-believers they see life differently, and so their resolutions to change and improve should also be quite different. You know, sometimes New Year's resolutions are just a joke. You know, for example, these should be filed under the heading, Don't be an idiot. Show the first one. I won't drink as much beer. Yeah, that's bad. Number two. I will stop buying useless stuff. It's a DVD rewinder if you can't see it. Number three. I will try to drive more carefully. You see little check marks? Like there's a handicapped guy at the very bottom. I think he has like four of those. Number four. I will treat my wife better. I think this is a Polish couple, actually. Number five. That's sad, isn't it? And number six. I will buy a motorcycle once in a while. That one's just pathetic, actually. Um, But seriously, though, of the more normal New Year's resolutions, what do you think is the number one? Any ideas? Wait, to lose weight to eat right to get into shape that's the number one new year's resolution new gym membership skyrocket in january after all of the holiday gorging and speaking of gorging i have to kind of take a little detour here last night we had to get pizza for like 14 people and so we're thinking, where do we go and so we called this place called sam's giant manhattan has anybody heard of it I was blown away. I couldn't get in the door with this pizza. It's 30 inches. It could, I had to tilt it to get it. We, we bought two of them. So I still have like half a pizza. So if anybody wants pizza, you can come to my house <laughs> after. the I should have brought it. I, I forgot. Um, <clears throat> and so your new gym memberships, they skyrocket during January. And only a fraction of those that start actually will continue past February. And so many people start on one of the million fad diets that are out there. But then again, it usually doesn't last very long. Has anybody heard of the Jesus diet? Nobody? I guess we should be asking ourselves, what would Jesus eat? And the answer is obvious. Sushi, right? No. Apparently we should um, be, well, related to our health, let me say this. The last one related to our health. Quitting smoking is number six. Quitting smoking. And in the area of career and work and finances, we have sticking to a budget that comes in at number two, debt reduction, number three, finding a better job, number seven, and learning something new is number eight. All of these have to do with our stuff. So it's kind of cool that we just finished six weeks talking about stuff. It was very appropriate. Um, spending more quality time with family and friends comes in at Number four, you know, basically this, this is a time when many men resolve to spend more time with needy and neglected children, basically their own kids. Um, and finding one soulmate is number five, that one special relationship that fulfills and deeply satisfies each partner so that you feel like you found the one person in the entire universe that was for you. And if you're married, may I suggest that you don't have to look very far, but that you might have to look a lot harder, especially at yourself. Now, these are all great resolutions, and you know what? Our lives would be a lot better off if we actually made progress in these areas. But even if we achieved all of these things, we could still get to the end of 2010. Worse yet, we could get to the end of our lives and realize that we've wasted it. We actually resolved to pursue the wrong goal. Jonathan Edwards, he's considered one of the greatest American thinkers and philosophers in our nation's history. He lived a little over 54 years between 1703 and 1758. He was a Christian philosopher. He was a theologian, a preacher, a pastor, a missionary. He served as president of Princeton University for a brief period before his life was cut short from a failed smallpox vaccination. And among his many famous works are his resolutions, which are made up of 70 Resolutions that he resolved to review every single week. And so he was acquainted with human weakness and frailty, and he understood that even with sincere intentions, he wouldn't enter into resolutions rashly or from reliance upon his own strength. And so he prefaces his resolutions with this. He says, "...being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will, for Christ's sake. And then he writes to himself, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. And here are just a few. I just want to give you a few of his 70 resolutions. Number one, resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to the glory of God and my own good, profit, and pleasure in the whole of my duration, Without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence, resolve to do whatever I think to be my duty and most for the good and advantage of mankind in general, resolve so to do whatever difficulties I meet with, how many, how many soever, and how great soever number five resolved never to lose one moment of time but to improve it in the most profitable way I possibly can, Number six. Resolve to live with all my might while I do live. Number 17, that I will live so, resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Number 40, resolve to inquire every night before I go to bed whether I have acted in the best way I possibly could with respect to eating and drinking. It's interesting, huh? 67, resolve after afflictions, to inquire what I am the better for them, what good I have got by them, and what I might have got by them. And number 68, resolve to confess frankly to myself all that which I find in myself, either infirmity or sin, and if it be what concerns religion, also to confess the whole case to God and implore needed help. I thank God that Jonathan Edwards didn't waste his life. He lived only 54 years, but he lived well. His life is inspiring because of his zeal and his resolve to live every moment for the supremacy, for the glory of God. And this is important because you and I, we were created for God's glory. Isaiah writes in Isaiah 43, verse 6, Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed. And made. Life is wasted when we don't live for the glory of God. All of life is to be lived for God's glory. And that's why the Apostle Paul, he gets down to the details of eating and drinking. In 1 Corinthians 10, 31, he says, So whether you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And the problem is, you know, some of us find this difficult. We have difficulty living so completely for the glory of God, because we think that He might lead us down a path that would actually make us less happy. But God is glorified when our supreme happiness is found in Him. He wants us to be happy and joyful. When we resolve to know Christ as the primary goal of our life, He becomes our ultimate joy and our delight. And it's when our lives fully display and express this joy that the world around us can see that, and it becomes a witness to the world, the glory of God. Listen to Jonathan Edwards' resolution number 22. Resolve to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. With all the power, might, vigor, and vehemence, yet violence I am capable of, or can bring myself to exert in any way that I can be thought of. In any way that can be thought of. Wow! I mean, unless you understand the connection in Edwards' mind between the glory of God and the happiness of believers, this sounds blatantly self-centered. It almost sounds dangerous. But Edwards was convinced that being happy in God was the way that we bring him glory. It's the way we glorify him. And delighting in God wasn't an option in life, but it was our joyful duty, and it should be the single passion of our lives. So for him, resolving to maximize his happiness in life was resolving to show God more glorious than all other sources of happiness. And it's when we don't display this joy and this delight in our God that for others to see and to admire, then it doesn't overflow and it doesn't extend to the world and other people as God had intended. Now, the Apostle Paul, he had a lot to say about living for the supremacy and for the glory of Christ and how to avoid wasting one life. And from the time of his conversion, Paul resolved that knowing Christ and pursuing the purpose for which Jesus had called him was the only goal that really mattered. For him, by comparison, every other goal that he might obtain was considered to be a waste. Turn in your Bible with me to uh, Philippians chapter 3. We're going to spend some time there. So Philippians chapter 3 starting in verse 8. Philippians 3, verse 8 says this, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, That comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Now, Paul, he had just warned the Philippians about heretics that were in the church. He called them dogs and mutilators of the flesh. And these were most likely Judaizers or these Jewish teachers that were telling people that spiritual perfection was available if they would just be circumcised and keep the law. And there were also Gnostics that were floating around at this time that were teaching that perfection was possible if you just achieved a certain level of knowledge. And so the Apostle Paul, he comes against that. In in verse 3 of chapter 3, he says this. He says, For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. And then right after that, he goes on and he lists all of his own remarkable credentials of pedigree and education and his zeal for the works of the law. And he says that he considers everything that he once held profitable to be rubbish, to be trash, to be waste compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus. Everything that he had accomplished in his own strength, apart from Jesus, he considers waste waste compared to gaining Christ and being found in Him and having a righteousness that comes from God and through faith in Christ. Paul was resolved to know Christ, to gain Jesus and to be found in Him above everything else in his life. And so when he says that I may know Him, he's referring to a knowledge of the heart, not just the mind. He wants to gain as full an understanding of Jesus' person and His love as possible, Not just learning certain facts about him, but especially the sharing of certain experiences with him. He wants to be entirely wrapped up in him so that Jesus is the entire world to him. This is the kind of knowledge that glorifies God. When you and I, when we become so united to Jesus, so intimately that our life reflects him and his glory. Look at verse 10. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings becoming like Him in His death and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. How do we know the power of His resurrection? The power of the Holy Spirit that makes us alive to God also strengthens us to follow Him and to obey Him. And it's when we trust the risen Christ to help us during our deepest times of testing and our greatest need, that we get to know him better as our God who is faithful and able to meet every need. We experience his resurrected power in our life. You know what I mean? Does Anybody know that? Knowing Christ also means being acquainted with suffering. For Paul, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings was, a, was considered a privilege. We see in Philippians 1:29, he said, that it has been granted to us on behalf of Christ to also suffer for him. Paul endured beatings and stonings and hunger and thirst and nakedness in his work as a witness to Christ for, uh, to all men. You see that in Acts 9.15 and in Acts 22.15. But it can also include the experience of the hatefulness of sin and hurt that we have in our own life, the sins that caused Jesus such indescribable pain. He died for you and for me. You know, many of us we say, you know, Lord, I want to know you better. I want to know you better, but we're not willing to suffer. We don't want to go through trials. We we don't want to suffer. And that's that's understandable. That's just who we are. But anybody who has walked with Jesus for a little while can tell you, they'll confirm that it's in the most difficult times of trial and even suffering that you really grow close to Jesus, that you really get to know Him. Anybody know what I mean? Knowing Christ also means dying to ourselves. You know, We can say that we know Him when we get to a place where we die to our own will and we choose to do His will and live for Him completely. This is the dying to sin and selfishness in our life that's the crucifying of our flesh. It's not allowing our sinful nature to live and to express itself, but to consider it dead. And so when you and I, when we resolve to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings and to become like him in his death, Jesus is glorified in us because he becomes the one that others see in us. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. When we resolve to know Christ we will realize that you know what this is a lifelong journey and that our faith will only be perfected when we see Jesus face to face Paul expresses his desire to know Christ and his striving for spiritual perfection as that of a runner that is intensely focused on running a race to reach a goal to to win the prize at the end He's used this analogy before in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 verse 24 he said Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it for to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize." with all that Paul had done in the name of Christ, he realizes that he still falls short of the glory of God. To those who thought perfection was possible and that Paul had obtained this perfection in his faith, he states a strong disclaimer right here. He says, no, I haven't obtained it. I haven't obtained it. He wants us to know he's not perfect. Thirty years after his conversion, he's saying, you know what, I am not what I ought to be. Aren't you glad that he says that? it gives me hope to know that even the great Apostle Paul still had a ways to go in really knowing and becoming like Jesus. And so we, too, you and I, we have to recognize who and where we are. You know, most of us don't have to be told that we're not perfect. That's pretty obvious, right? We get that. Yet this is what Paul strived for. His goal was to know Jesus perfectly. And why did he strive to and train and beat his body in this race for a goal that he couldn't obtain in this life? It's because we live in this tension between who God had made us to be in our spiritual death and resurrection and what we are in the process of becoming. We're caught between the fact that Christ has made us new creatures. We've been born again and that we, and that we have not yet become in fullness what He wants us to be. So the demand for us then it's to live in the here and the, and the now and, and to have died with Christ to sin, yet we're still sinners And we've been reckoned by God as righteous and He has accepted us by faith in Christ. Yet we are, in fact, unrighteous. And any claim we make to righteousness is as filthy rags, the Bible says. This is the tension that we live in. But you and I, we are drawn by this powerful force, this impulsion of this personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He has already made us His own. And this force of His love makes makes it necessary for us to be, to become, what He has called us to be, new persons in Christ. And so every day we begin right where we are, claiming boldly and confidently that Christ has made us new creatures. That's a fact. That's a reality if you're born again. But confessing humbly at the same time that we have not become in fullness what Christ wants us to be. And so we move forward. And in doing this, we resolve to become that which Jesus has purposed for you and me to become. And so he says, But I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He presses on. Why did Jesus take a hold of Paul? He called him to preach to the Gentiles. We see that when he testifies in the book of Acts in chapter 26. He says, Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me And what I will show you, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So Paul's entire post-conversion life was sacrificed to fulfill this very call. He pressed with all of his being to accomplish and lay hold of that which Jesus had laid hold of him. So the question for us, why did Jesus lay a hold of you and me? Generally, as I've said, we're all called to bring glory to God in our lives. We're all called to delight in him and to enjoy him passionately so that the world around us can see his glory. And we're also called to be transformed and to conform to the image of Christ. We see that in Romans chapter 8. In verse 29, Paul also writing said, For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those He predestined, He also called. And those He called, He also justified. And those He justified, He also glorified. So becoming more like Jesus and being conformed to His likeness, this glorifies God as we more naturally do His will. But then individually and specifically, We are each called to bring glory to God by using our own gifts and abilities that he has uniquely gifted us with. We use that to love and to serve those in the kingdom of God. And so we need to pursue and we need to understand our spiritual gifts. We need to use them for the purpose uh, that he gave them to us for. And so through prayer and through experimentation, God will reveal his will for us in this area. And it's when we understand God's will for us, both generally and individually, that we are then to press with all of our might to lay hold of that which He has laid hold of us. Look at verse 13. He says, Brothers, I do not consider myself yet, as yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. When we resolve to know Christ, we'll find that knowing Christ requires focused, intentional effort. It actually requires exertion on our part, persistent concentration on one thing. You know, there is no question about the power of an ideal and the energy that's produced by a single driving passion and the likelihood of achieving that which we set our minds to. So it's important that we choose our goals wisely. But what really matters as we seek the prize of the high calling of God is that we concentrate on this path. You know, that we run this race with our eyes on the course and that our attention is on our present steps. We can't permit anything from diverting us off the course. The one thing that Paul refers to is it's really like two sides of the same coin. First, you have to leave the past behind such concentration on the course. It presents its requirements. And the first is forgetting the part of the course that the runner has already covered. A runner can't look back on the ground that's already been covered. There's no room for looking back. You can't look at the past when you're exerting all of your energy and your focus to move forward. And so it's the same way spiritually. Looking back is forbidden. Remember the story of Lot's wife. When, when Paul says here that he forgets what lies behind, He's referring to a type of forgetting that is not passive, but it's active. It's an active obliteration of any thought of merits and attainments that were piled up in the past that would come to his mind. He would immediately just banish it from his mind. It's it's like a constant deliberate discarding of any thought any thought of past attainments. He's combating self-satisfaction. Past victories and accomplishments, they're irrelevant to finishing this race and obtaining this prize so we must forget what we've previously done in the name of jesus in order for us to move forward you know what god has done through us before it, it's it's for our learning it's for our experience but it won't move us any closer to the goal of knowing christ any better and so in this race of life we concentrate on the path and we forget as we run we're not thinking about previous races run. We're not thinking about whether we won or whether we lost. We may store those achievements in our memory and on occasion we bring them out so that we can kind of look at it and see what God has done for us. But we don't rest on our successes, but we use those to get energized as we run the race and as we move forward. Similarly, looking at past failures will only serve to hinder us from fully concentrating on the prize that God has for us. Now, this is a hard one for for some of us. I mean, some of us have made some very serious mistakes. We can all relate to that. You know, whether your failure is, is academic or whether it's in business or failed friendships or a failed marriage, whatever it might be, you know, we can't continue to focus on these things without it slowing us down. And we need to learn and we need to grow from these mistakes, but we can't allow our failures to condemn us or to debilitate us from moving forward and laying hold of that which Jesus laid hold of us. And this intentional forgetting also has to include past wounds, past hurts caused by other people. You know, we have to actively face those things. We have to deal with them so that we can put them behind us. If we don't, they will continue to trip us up, and they will keep us from running the race that God has called us to run. Maybe your parents weren't there for you when you needed them or maybe you were abused by somebody that was close to you, or you were betrayed by a friend or or by a spouse or, or by a co-worker, whatever it may be. We need to do the hard work of putting it behind us so that we can focus on the purpose that God has for us right here and right now. And as we do this at the very same time, the other side of the coin is as we're putting that behind us, we are straining towards what is ahead. We need to keep moving with this unwavering progression. A very graphic verb is used here to picture a runner straining every nerve and every muscle as he keeps running with all of his might toward the goal. His hand is stretched out to grasp it. That's the picture that's used here. Now, yes, the spiritual—the goal of spiritual perfection we know will only be reached when our race is completely finished. But our steady progression in holiness is the result of God's working in us as well as our straining towards what's ahead. You know, on one hand, you have Philippians one six. Paul says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. But then he also says in 2 Timothy 4.7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. And now there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord The righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only me, but also all those who have longed for his appearing. And so although a person can't actually reach this objective of perfection here and now, we can indeed make progress toward that goal. And the line of progress may not be straight. It might be a zigzag, but it's still progress nonetheless. And that's what God has called us to, to continually move forward. Verse 14, so he says, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. When we resolve to know Christ, we must constantly be looking forward toward the goal. The focus of life is in the here and the now, and our energy is expended on living life to the fullest in in what Christ gives us today. And we gain this energy from this divine purpose for our life. And so Paul says that I reach forward, I press toward the goal, And the word goal here is that which one fixes his eyes on. Throughout the race, the sight of the goal at the end of the track is what encouraged the runner to redouble his exertions and redouble his efforts. He was ever running towards the goal. He was following that line from his eyes to the goal. And we see that in the book of Hebrews, the writer says in, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, scorning its shame, He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So in this spiritual race, the goal and the prize, they're really the same. It's knowing Jesus Christ, and it's perfection in Him. But they indicate different aspects of that same perfection. The goal is viewed from a human perspective as our human striving, and the prize is viewed from God's perspective as the gift of His sovereign grace whereby He gives us everlasting life. And though it's true that the believing and the striving from start to finish, they're all because of God's grace, nevertheless, it is us that must embrace Christ and embrace salvation in Him. It's you and it's I that must strive to enter in God doesn't do the believing for us. He doesn't do the striving for us. That's our part. And so, with this glorious prize in mind, namely the blessings of everlasting life, perfect wisdom, joy, holiness, peace, fellowship, all enjoyed to the glory of God in this marvelous, marvelously created, newly created universe, and in the company of Christ and all of the saints, we, like Paul, should be pressing on towards that goal. So as we wrap up 2009, are you considering making any New Year's resolutions this year? And if so, is knowing Christ at the top of your list, is knowing Him fuller and better at the top of your list? Maybe you're like me and you don't really make New Year's resolutions, but shouldn't we all be renewing our resolve to know Jesus better? Not just at the beginning of this next year, but each and every day. When you boil it all down, there's only one thing that matters above all else, and that's knowing Jesus. Without Him, everything else is rubbish. It's trash. It's waste. Comparative. You don't want to get to the end of next year, let alone the end of your life, and realize that you regret how you spent much of your time, how you spent your life. You don't want to waste it. Resolve today that you will seek Christ as your highest passion and that you will strive to know Jesus better. Resolve today that you will know him better and that you will delight in him and you'll bring glory to him. Resolve today that you'll put the past behind you and you won't let it distract you from moving forward in this race. As we approach this new year, resolve to live each day from this point forward, with a new sense of possibility and anticipation of what God will do in you and through you as you press on towards that goal win the prize that God has called you to. Amen? band's going to come up. As we do every week, we spend time to reflect and to worship God and we come to the communion table where we remember what Jesus suffered for us. We remember that his body was broken for us as we take that cracker and as we break it and as we dip it in the wine or the grape juice. We remember his blood was shed so that we could have a relationship with him, so that we could know him better. That's an amazing thought. So reflect on that as you take communion today. We worship God as we we sing. The band's going to lead us in a few songs. We worship God in our giving. We have offering boxes on the sides and in the back, and we give back to God a little bit of what he's given to us. And we worship God through fellowship. As you as you uh, leave the service today, don't just walk out of here. Introduce yourself to somebody you don't know. get to know somebody. Hang out. Talk to somebody. Love one another. And we worship God through prayer. You know, I'm always amazed at how few people actually go back. A prayer because I know in this very room there are so many needs that are represented here right now and the elders and deacons will be available to pray for you, to pray with you if you want to know Christ better talk to them. pray with them pray with me now Father we thank you for today and I trust Lord that you have spoken to hearts in this room we thank you that we can know you, that you desire to know us and you've made it possible for us to know you Lord so I pray that as this new year approaches, Lord, that we would be filled with hope, that we would be filled with a hope that you are going to do great things in us and through us. And there may be pain involved, there may be suffering involved, it may be very difficult and challenging, but that we can trust that you are there with us every step of the way. Lord, with all of the good things that you do for us and that you give to us, Lord, help us not to forget that you are the glory that we live in. May us bring, may we bring you glory, Lord. May we experience the joy and the happiness that you have intended for each one of us. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. -hmm. Mm